This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Uh, hello and welcome to everybody. Uh, I'm Jim Thompson, the president and CEO of RAND. And I want to welcome all of you here this evening. Uh, RAND, I think most of you know, RAND is a nonprofit institution that uh, helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. And we uh, do that in a lot of different ways. We have many clients, uh, but we also publish our work so that the, pub the public has access to it. You can go to our website and download things for free. There's about a thousand titles a year of the research that's uh, uh, put into the public domain, ranging from health care to transportation to education to defense uh, and uh, foreign policy. Um, so uh, this kind of a forum is uh, is an opportunity for uh, people to learn more about our work, and you're going to hear a little bit about that in just a, just a bit. I also want to thank, there are many members here I see of our policy circle or from some of our advisory boards, and I want to thank all of you for, who have uh, are made donations to the institution to help us uh, do uh, research in the public interest on, on public policy issues. I'd, I'd be really grateful for you, to you for, for that, uh, that help. I also, we have many people here from uh, the consular corps and from offices of our uh, representatives. I just want to acknowledge that. The Consul General of Greece, Elizabeth Fodiadou. The Deputy Consul General of Switzerland, Roland Rietman. Uh, the Office of the Consul General of Finland. Uh, Office of Congresswoman Jane Harmon, representatives of, this, of uh, California State Senator Romero's office, representatives from the California State Assembly, Speaker Perez, Assemblyman Furutani, Assemblywoman Pavley, and Assemblywoman Brownlee, the Office of Ze County Supervisor Zeb Yaroslavsky, and Ralph Metcher, the president of our school board here in Santa Monica. Uh, I'm going to ask one of our advisory board members to come up here to introduce the speaker. Uh, Fred Gerstel is here. He's a member of our the advisory board of our Infrastructure Safety and Environment Board uh, 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 unit. He has a long experience in the private sector, uh, and he formerly served as the chairman and, uh, of the board and CEO of Calmat Company, among many other posts, and he's also a good friend. So I asked Fred to come up and uh, introduce Charlie. Short and sweet. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> you're, actually, Jim, you're, your introduction reminds me of, of another time when you introduced me. And that time you used Google because your schedule was very hurried. And uh, what you didn't know, however, was that there were two Gerstels, and they were both Fred Gerstel. Uh, the number one, I would like to say, is probably him. Uh, that Fred Gerstel uh, is a cousin, actually, was a cousin, still is, and 
he was a graduate, as you said, and very, very articulately. Uh, he introduced me as Fred Gerstel, and a graduate of Yale University. I went to Princeton. Uh, <laughs> He also said that I, I had earned a Ph.D. I got an undergraduate degree in, in liberal arts at Princeton. And that he, he Fred, the first Fred, uh, had had a wonderful career as a professor after getting his advanced degree at Yale. Uh, I could hardly teach anything except about stone, which I mined. The, uh, anyway, after 41 years um, in that business... Um, I let, let him go, actually, and he read the whole thing. And I thought, how wonderful it is to these people in, in the audience to, to have them find something out about me they didn't know, that I had a, a Ph.D., and they thought, most of them thought, gee, I, we thought Fred, number two, uh, was in, in the mining business. Uh, he's been hiding it from us for years. Well, anyway, it, I spent a lot of the, my time as a CEO in the mining business worrying about green issues. And as a company, I did uh, mention briefly to our speaker tonight that uh, we took it very, very seriously. You may think that mining is uh, not something that pays attention to green. We really did. And we got awards from the Department of Interior. They were hard-earned, and, and we were proud of them. I'm actually proud tonight of RAND and of Jim. The, um, as you came in here, and most of the persons who do visit here, guests and visitors, as well as RAND employees, uh, when you enter this building, I think you really need to be proud. Um, it is a LEED Gold certified building under the green building uh, system that is used. And it's probably, I'm not sure of this, Jim, but it's either the only one or it is one of several that have gained that certification. The building is, in my opinion, proof that a structure can not only be functional, which this is, but visually and environmentally friendly. And I think we all do need to be proud of that. And that's basically why we're here tonight. As a member, as Jim said, of, of a, an important advisory board here, it's a pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, uh, Ambassador Charles Rees. He brings facts gleaned from rigorous and nonpartisan analysis that Rand is famous for. Uh, he's going to talk to us about green buildings, and he will utilize the experience of Australia and the European Union and see it as a starting place for the United States to grow in that, in that uh, endeavor. Ambassador Rees is, a fellow, is, is actually a, uh, a fellow at Rand, and has come to Los Angeles from Washington, D.C., not only to thaw out, which was necessary, but to share his remarkable experience with us. He has served the United States in an innumerable ways, and tonight he will share his knowledge of green buildings and their potential, <coughs> or their potential here. He is a graduate of Johns Hopkins University and recently served as the Minister for Economic Affairs and Coordinator for Economic Transition in Baghdad at the United States Embassy. From December 2004 until, Dece until June of 2007, uh, Charles served as the United States Ambassador to Greece and held a number of distinguished foreign service posts with the United States Department of State. He has lived in Ankara and, and San Santo, Dun 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 Sorry, Santo Domingo, 
while working at American embassies and earned, as a result, a number of well-deserved awards, including the Department of Army Outstanding Civil Service Award. It's a, it's a wonderful award and, and deserved. Today, he brings us his research on green buildings and how we can apply it in the city, our city of Los Angeles. We welcome his thoughts for Los Angeles, where we endeavor to be greener than other cities in the world. Ambassador Rees, we give you a very warm welcome here to Los Angeles, and you're welcome back anytime. Thanks very much. Well, thank you very much, and that's certainly worthy of a PhD, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's typical uh, when people uh, uh, give remarks like this to start out by saying how delighted they are at the opportunity to speak, and I really am delighted to be out of Washington. Let me tell you, I've got a meter and a half of snow in my front yard. Part of the gutter gave way from an ice dam, and it's just a mess. And, and so it's, uh, to come to uh, sunny Southern California is, is always a pleasure, but particularly uh, at this time uh, in the nation's capital. Um, I'm going to talk to you today uh, about energy efficiency uh, programs for buildings. And my focus is, about, is on, as um, uh, Fred said, on how our close friends and allies have approached this um, challenge, the challenge of making buildings more energy efficient. And uh, as Jim mentioned, my remarks are based on a study that I led for a study team that I led for RAND, uh, the study uh, from which is published uh, and available on the website or the other 999 studies. <laughs> now, we, uh, we often think about climate policy in terms of the need to control fossil fuel power plants, um, large industrial uh, processes or SUVs on the freeway. Those are important sources of atmospheric carbon di dioxide. But we often don't think about how much energy we consume in buildings or how we could go about measuring and reducing the energy that our buildings do use, especially for heating, cooling, and lighting. Here in the United States, our two main programs for promoting energy efficiency in buildings are the periodically changing tax credit provisions for energy efficient, uh, efficiency-related retrofits and the progressive tightening that we've seen in our building codes with respect to their energy performance requirements. In some parts of the country, utilities also offer free or reduced-cost energy audit programs for homeowners, either as a public service or because of pressure from state regulators. Some of those audit recommendations are implemented. Various jurisdictions, including here in California and my own hometown of Washington, D.C., have gone further and are exploring the possibilities of energy use ratings for large buildings and having them displayed in the lobby. And in addition, uh, the U.S. Green Buildings Council runs the nationwide uh, voluntary ratings program called uh, Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, or LEAD. And as, uh, as we've uh, already talked about, buildings can be rated silver, uh, gold, or platinum based on their design energy efficiency. And the building we're in today is indeed a gold-rated building, and we are very proud of it. And even those of us who don't work in it are proud to come visit. Um, buildings have, though, characteristics which make energy efficiency policies tough to design. They are expensive, transactions are relatively infrequent, and buildings last a long time. Unlike cars or toasters, 
they're not standardized. A design for a south-facing house in Pittsburgh would not perform very well facing north in Duluth. How buildings are used also matters. Most buildings that win awards for their energy efficiency design actually use more energy than the, the architects intended. Lights are left on, thermostats are raised to respond to tenant complaints, and heating and cooling systems are not serviced regularly. Moreover, the big energy savings are to be had by improving the performance of existing buildings, even though we should obviously work to make the new ones better. With all the variables, it's hard to gather reliable information on building energy performance and to evaluate the cost-effectiveness of efficiency investments. As a result, potential renters, buyers, investors often don't have enough information to make rational choices about energy efficiency investments. Also, the buildings industry is characterized by small-scale firms, which may not have the technical expertise necessary to make the significant improvements in energy efficiency design or technology. And finally, large buildings are also affected by the mismatch in incentives between landlords and tenants. If the tenants pay the energy bills, what are the incentives for the landlords to invest in the efficiency? If the landlords make the capital investments, how do they ensure that the tenants don't offset them with higher thermostat settings? In short, energy efficiency in buildings often suffers from market failures, or at least many market imperfections. Our RAND study took a close look at how jurisdictions in Europe and Australia are, have attempted to deal with these shortcomings and challenges. Our objective was to identify lessons that we could apply here at home. Let me start with the European Union. The EU, as you know, is a grouping of 27 member states which share sovereignty in harmonizing regulations on many issues, including energy policy and increasingly in foreign policy. Much as we do at the state level, advances in EU policy are often pioneered by EU member states. So it has been with energy, building energy efficiency policies, which were pioneered by Denmark and Greece in the 1990s and later made law in the e, at the EU level. And even now, EU law accords considerable flexibility to implementation, in implementation for each member's country. The European focus is on disclosing information about the energy efficiency of buildings. In the expectation that consumers with better information about building energy performance will value high-performing buildings and invest in cost-effective capital improvements to improve efficiency. The centerpiece of the EU's landmark 2002 Energy Performance in Buildings Directive is its requirement that when any building is, or unit is sold or leased, an energy performance certificate must be presented. These certificates, obviously called EPCs, rate the buildings or units energy efficiency design or alternatively its measured energy usage over a recent period. The formats for the certificates may differ from country to country, but the ratings must be presented in an understandable way, usually by comparison to benchmark values for comparable building types. Most European countries have uh, designed building energy efficiency ratings that mirror their appliance rating systems, where they, have, they present the expected energy efficiency 
uh, in letter grades from A at the top to F at the bottom. The European directive also requires that public buildings over a certain size post energy efficiency certificates in a prominent place where the citizens can see them. Now, it's taken the EU a long time to design on a country-by-country basis the content and format for these certificates to train and to accredit the large number of inspectors needed to issue these documents for every building sold or rented every year and to assess all the public buildings in each country. That's why a law passed in 2002 only went into effect at the beginning of 2009. Now, let me turn for a moment to Australia. Down under, as they say, they have had a national program for rating energy efficiency of residential buildings for several years. Large commercial buildings often seek additional design ratings as we do here through the LEED certifications. Their voluntary uh, rating system is called Green Star. But in Australia, the two largest states have pioneered additional approaches. New South Wales, where Sydney is located, and Victoria, which is where Melbourne is, have experimented with allowing building owners and their energy users to earn abatement credits called white certificates by installing specific types of equipment or fixtures that would improve energy efficiency. The white certificates earned may be sold back to the utilities or big industrial users that have energy use reduction obligations under their uh, cap-and-trade system. In Australia, governments also drive energy efficiency particularly. It happens that federal and state governments have an estimated 40% of the commercial office space market in the major cities. And New South Wales and Victoria and at least one federal ministry have an announced policy uh, that they will only lease building uh, office space that has a minimum five, uh, four Green Star rating. Uh, which is roughly equivalent to a lead silver. The public sector's off- the share of the office market is so big that uh, developers generally build new buildings to such a standard so as to not foreclose the possibility of leasing to a government client in the future. So a variety of innovative approaches are being tried in Europe and Australia. But we found that in, in order to design and implement them, the Europeans and Australians have had to work their way through a number of issues which will be important for us to keep in mind as we think about similar approaches here. Because for all their innovation, both Australia and Europe recognize that perhaps the most effective way to ensure high energy efficiency in buildings is through tightening building code requirements. If you build in efficiency features on construction, it costs much less than it would to retrofit energy efficiency uh, measures later. So codes that can require insulation or equipment performance standards that ensure a building's outer walls and heating and cooling systems perform well, and, and the codes can do so for the life of the building. Codes are also mandatory and enforced by an existing cadre of building inspectors. As a public policy tool, however, codes are slow to have an overall effect on energy use because even in years of healthy economic growth, normally only about 3% of a country's building stock is built or renovated in a major way. And when economies are weak, as they are now, uh, tough building codes can take a very long time to make an aggregate 
aggregate effect on the uh, uh, energy use of a, of a society. In fact, uh, some say that if codes are tightened in such a way to substantially increase the cost of new construction, they can retard the replacement or refurbishment of buildings that are energy inefficient, and the efficiencies otherwise might be realized are lost. That said, but because buildings last so long, it makes good sense to apply tough energy efficiency standards uh, as we are and, and as our partners are now and in the near future. The EU's directive of 2002 thus tackled building code development and implementation. The EU requires that all member states have an energy efficiency dimension to their building code system and directs that the energy aspects of the codes be reviewed every five years. Code compliance is, is enforced by building inspectors uh, through on-site inspections, as it is if you build a stairway. Traditionally, however, the focus of the building inspectors has been safety and that stairway, and that is what the inspectors have been trained to look for. So the, if codes are to apply to energy standards as well, it helps that they be very specific or prescriptive. If the code requires a minimum R30 insulation in an attic, inspectors can consistently enforce that at a reasonable cost. They look at the... the, at the, uh, the insulation and it says R30 in it, good enough. Such specific requirements also allow the building materials manufacturers to standardize and the cost of that insulation is cheaper than it might otherwise be. The downside of such prescriptive codes is that they can inhibit design and innovation. Some countries and local governments in Europe have thus exper experimented with performance-based uh, building codes. Such codes can inspire new design approaches, such as the use of passive siting, building siting, passive features, and other non-materials-related uh, efficiency improvements. But they, they require much more highly trained inspectors to ensure compliance. In some parts of the EU, any use of building codes is relatively new. In former socialist countries like Bulgaria, multifamily housing, office um, buildings, and other structures were built uh, and uh, owned by the state. Building codes did not exist. The state took care of it. With the development of the private sector, however, an entire building code system has had to be built from scratch. So in these circumstances, the Bulgarians found compliance with code requirements to be a real issue and superimposing the energy requirements an additional complication. The Bulgarians thus established a national energy efficiency agency partly just to ensure compliance with building codes. As I described earlier, the use of standardized ratings that are presented at sale or lease is a central aspect of the EU's approach. Some Australian states in the Australian Capital Territory, uh, which is the, the land around the, the, the city of uh, Canberra, uh, also require energy efficiency certificates. Now, these ratings are based on the premise that buyers and sellers, or renters and landlords, thus informed, will value good energy performance. But energy efficiency information is most effective if it is pr provided before the transaction, since typically at the time of settlement, all, most of the issues, including the price, are already agreed, and the effect of the energy efficiency information presented at settlement is less. 
For this reason, at the end of 2009, the European Union has already amended the directive to require energy ratings be included in all advertisements for sale or lease of, of uh, uh, properties. So if you're out looking for an apartment in Berlin or a vacation house in Portugal, you should see in the ad, even here, its rating from an A to an F. But what is it that gets rated? In the European system, ratings can be based uh, 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 on a building's design characteristics or its measured energy performance. And Germany has actually developed a certificate uh, that will rate both design and performance. The EU leaves the decision about which uh, methodology to use to the member states. Now, a design-based approach is often the only alternative for new buildings, and it also facilitates cross-building comparisons uh, by potential buyers and renters. It recognizes that, in principle, many building owners have no control over the tenant behavior. But design ratings are actually quite expensive to prepare, especially for existing buildings where the uh, blueprints and specifications may have been lost over the passage of time. In contrast, energy usage-based ratings present information about the buildings or the units measured energy use, which is, after all, what it is we're trying to reduce or minimize. These often can be prepared by a utility from the uh, usage records, from its own records, at a low cost and may be much more easily audited. Uh, however, in multi-tenant buildings, energy usage is mainly uh, determined by the tenant behavior, and tenants may not have any interest in maximizing the rating uh, for the building for the owner's benefit. The use of benchmark buildings and standardized rating categories simplifies the comparison of ratings for all consumers. However, with rating systems, special attention uh, may need to be uh, put into the problem to ensure that they improve the energy efficiency of older buildings. Making older buildings more efficient is how we can achieve the biggest overall improvements in energy efficiency. Older buildings tend to be more inefficient, and they certainly, there certainly are many more of them than there are in the newly constructed. When the standards for the highest ratings are based on the best performance of the most efficient new buildings, the owners of the older buildings may not be able to attain them, even with extensive renovation. Think of it this way. If you have a B-rated building, you might be able to invest 2% of the building's cost and make uh, a, an improvement to an A-rated building. And that Improvement in rating may increase the value of the building by 2% right there. And it's right, right off the top. It's, it's, it's worth it to you before the energy savings are even considered. On the other hand, you could have a, a, a building that is rated E, uh, old 1970s, 1960s uh, building. And it may take very extensive renovation, windows, HVAC systems, uh, uh, so forth, to improve the, the rating of that building just to the rating of a D. Yet the D rating is so low as to have negligible or, or no impact on the market value of the building. It makes it harder to justify the investment. That is so even though you save much more energy taking an E-rated building 
to a D than you do taking a B-rated building to an A. One European building owner that I uh, interviewed for this study had the memorable uh, comment that the energy rating systems was designed for the defamation of older buildings. There really is no easy way to square that circle. Now, public buildings. Public buildings can show the way to enhance efficiency and, and raise general awareness of ratings in and of themselves. And that's why the Europeans apply special disclosure op, uh, obligations to public buildings based on if they have more than 10,000 square feet of uh, useful floor area. Now, uh, Member states get to decide what qualifies as public. Most apply the, the requirements only to buildings owned or occupied by government entities, although Portugal goes further, considering public any building that is generally accessible to the public, including shopping malls and train stations and uh, a variety of other such private buildings that are generally open to the public. But however the public is defined, the EU mandates that such uh, uh, buildings have these uh, ener display energy certificates in a prominent place. These uh, prominent energy uh, certificates in the lobbies, where the voters can see them every day, serve as a powerful incentive to public authorities themselves to invest in energy efficiency. Objective disclosure is most important in the ubiquitous public structures such as schools, post offices, uh, police uh, the, uh, stations, etc., where, where the disclosure governs, uh, garners public support uh, for uh, energy efficiency and understanding of, of, of what it is that, uh, that, that the public entity is interested in, in, in doing and stands for. Um, since... On this question of should you be designed or should it be measured energy usage, since in public buildings you rarely have a split incentive problem, usually the public entity owns such a public building, uh, the, it is best, uh, at least in, in my judgment, for public display energy certificates to be based on measured energy usage rather than on design criteria um, uh, because you don't have the split incentive problem. So there are good intentions on public buildings. Uh, but I suppose that it would not surprise you to hear that despite the law, some jurisdictions in Europe, and particularly local governments, are not moving at all quickly to appraise and rate their buildings, largely because of the significant costs involved at a time of tight budget pressures. Now, more than anything else, the effectiveness of European and Australian efficiency policies depends on the quality impartiality, and credibility of the experts that review the designs, inspect the completed buildings, and issue the certificates. Design and usage ratings should ideally be based on a case-by-case -case review of the designs or the as-built structures. Ratings to work have to convey, convey significant market value to buildings or decrease the market value. Experts thus need to be carefully trained, certified, and their work audited. The largest number of inspectors, when you think about it, uh, are required on the day that the policy, uh, the, the year that the program goes into effect, because in that year, no buildings are rated. And you have to rate every building that goes through a transaction. Uh, in fact, it was a shortage of trained, certified uh, inspectors 
that led the EU to postpone the entry in force of, the, uh, of their directive for three years, from 2006 to 2009. And the Europeans' latest uh, amendments that they adopted in 2009 actually had to direct the member states to set up a quality assurance program for their inspectors. And another thing to worry about with inspectors is their independence. Worryingly, about half of the EU member states uh, allow inspectors to be employees of the related parties, building design firms, developers, uh, not uh, a right set of incentives. Another efficiency uh, promotion strategy is the use of white certificates, which, as you'll recall, are used in Australia and are tradable rights based on energy efficiency investments. Uh, white certificate programs have been instituted in, as part of the uh, cap-and-trade programs in some of these Australian states, and more recently have been uh, also introduced in France and Italy. Now, the th key challenges to the effective use of white certificate programs are the definition of the business-as-usual behavior that doesn't earn an incentive, figuring out what the reduction in energy use to be imposed on the obligated party, if you will, uh, utility or industrial thing, that earns, that gives them a cap that they need to, uh, to deal with, and then verifying the consumer behavior that qualifies for the certificate rights. Under the white certificate program in New South Wales aimed at carbon emissions, certificates were earned by building owners and operators that installed specified high-efficiency equipment. However, most of the uh, certificates were in fact earned by firms that distributed low-cost equipment that improved energy efficiency, typically compact fluorescent bulbs or low-flow shower heads. And, uh, Third-party aggregators would uh, uh, pull together all of the corresponding uh, white certificates and sell them to the utilities. The trouble was that subsequent studies found that some 40% of this equipment was never used or installed. And actually, New South Wales had to end their white certificate program. But as a policy, uh, public policy approach to building energy efficiency, white certificate programs clearly can provide incentives, but their effectiveness uh, depends on the rigor of the efficiency gains required and the system of verification and enforcement. Now, most of the European and Australian uh, practices uh, reviewed in our study are really still too new to permit uh, definitive assessments of their impact. Moreover, it is difficult to separate the effect of aspects of public policies that are, comp that are customarily implemented in bundles with pricing, tax incentives, certificates, uh, and, and other information components. There are really only a few studies, and we really looked hard for studies on impact, I can tell you, uh, that bear on the impact of these uh, various uh, certificate programs. One recent Australian study did demonstrate a clear impact of energy labeling on house values. The Australian capital territories required mandatory disclosure of energy efficiency ratings since 1999, so for more than 10 years. The Australian rating system is administered by assessors who use a standard software package called First Rate. It issues ratings on a 1 to 10 star basis uh, with in half star increments. So uh, some Australians studied all the house sales in the Australian Capital Territory for 2005 and 2006 
and using the data on all the other characteristics of the houses, uh, such as floor space, light, lot size, location, window area, and so forth, tried to set up comparable um, houses, one, one to another. Uh, the researchers found that ratings were positively asset, uh, associated with sales prices, with each half-starting increment being worth between 1.2 and 1.9% of the sales price. So a star is worth maybe 3% of the sales price. A study of the office building market in the United States uh, focused on voluntary programs. Uh, the LEED program we've been talking about, also the Energy Star rating for is an energy use rating as administered by the EPA. And this, uh, this study sought to set up uh, very, very small micro um, areas uh, and compare buildings since buildings, you know, lo real estate is all about location, set up uh, very, very small areas within, I think, a, a tenth of a mile uh, around a, a rated building and look at similar buildings of similar uh, floor space. And the study, uh, after uh, sifting through uh, really a very lot of data, found that uh, uh, buildings with LEED ratings and Energy Star ratings consistently had higher rental income and lower vacancy rates than the buildings in close proximity. On the other hand, a study in Denmark found no measurable effect of hortatory recommendations that sometimes accompany ratings. A little background on that perhaps counterintuitive conclusion. The Danish national program uh, in effect at the time required rating certificates with improvement recommendations uh, to be presented at all uh, real estate transactions. Um, strangely enough, though, it had no penalties for noncompliance. It isn't as if, uh, if you're missing a lead paint certification, the buyer can get out of the uh, purchase or something like that. They did uh, have no uh, compliance. So it set up a perfect research uh, opportunity because you had comparable transactions, one with the certificates and one without the, transit, uh, the certificates. And in the years studies, studied, which were 1999 to 2002, it happened that only about half of the total houses were sold with uh, certificates and recommendations. So they expected, the researchers expected that houses that were, uh, the transaction was accompanied by um, recommendations would generally be aware of the scope for energy savings and that, therefore, buyers receiving such recommendations would tend to use less energy than those without them. And the Danish researchers actually, because Den Denmark is a small place and has very good records, had access to the utility records, and they were able to track historic uh, and, uh, and future use of energy by house, by address. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, they, uh, well, they, they assumed that the biggest reduction in energy use would be in C-rated, sort of middle-rated houses. They didn't find it. They found that there was some modest uh, reduction in energy use in A-rated houses, but that they could find no um, statistically significant change in behavior uh, with their certificates and the recommendations in all the other houses um, that they uh, examined. Why? We don't know. Uh, the Danes don't know. Perhaps it was the quality of the recommendations were low. Perhaps the Danes already have very good energy-saving practices and 
there wasn't a lot of scope for improvement. As you can see, at least in my view, much more research is required to, uh, to adequately assess the cost-effectiveness of policies that are implemented uh, in order to improve energy efficiency in buildings. So what are the lessons for the United States? All told, uh, I think that the experiences of Europe and Australia suggest that effective policies to promote energy efficiency in buildings can, can be designed using information disclosure, building codes, financial incentives, and benchmarking. Startup of such policies and their consistent implementation pose special challenges, however. Our review of the European and Australian records suggests that the following insights be taken into account as the United States considers similar approaches. Let me suggest eight. First, uh, including high energy efficiency standards in building codes is fundamental. Regional climatic zone consistency in energy efficiency requirements for building codes would be highly desirable as well. That would allow building materials manufacturers to improve and standardize building components. Given the importance of tenant behavior in energy consumption, we should also consider applying energy efficiency code requirements to tenant interior fit-outs, especially in office and retail buildings. For the longer term, performance codes should be considered, but in the short term, simpler to administer prescriptive codes are preferable. Any expanded use of building codes should be accompanied by aggressive training and quality assurance programs for inspectors. Second, ratings and certificates are tricky to make work right and expensive to administer. An information mechanism such as energy performance certificates should be simple enough to be understandable but meaningful enough to affect marketplace behavior. Benchmarking can help, but the enormous variety of building types and siting choices make establishment of benchmark buildings um, and uh, the reference grades very challenging. Once the benchmark values are established, uh, allowing or even better requiring them to be used in property advertisements and listings seems preferable than requiring them to be presented at the time of settlement. And building owners should always be allowed to display certificates at their option. Third, policy should pay special attention to the incentives for improvements in existing buildings. While public policies can easily affect the energy performance of newly built structures, as I mentioned, widespread energy efficiency gains can only be achieved through retrofitting and making operational improvements to existing buildings. Management improvements are easier, cheaper, and faster to make than capital improvements. And benchmarks are an imperfect uh, instrument for encouraging such improvements because there are so many variables. Six or ten rating scales inevitably give some buildings a free pass. Moreover, experience has shown that buildings rarely perform as well in the real world as the design suggested that they would. This means energy use monitoring, efficiency incentives, marketable white abatement certificates, and inspection and improvement recommendation systems should be an important part of the efficiency approach. Fourth, 
Public buildings are important since they use significant amounts of energy in their own right and can serve as models for the commercial and residential sector. This means public buildings should be, continue to be a test bed for en new energy savings I ideas and should be used to promote awareness of energy efficiency and, and performance. Standards for disclosure of energy performance of public buildings can serve both objectives at once. Given public sector control over most public building operations, disclosure should usually be based on measured energy usage with an option to provide design ratings where they exist. Fifth, the credibility of any building energy efficiency program depends almost entirely on the quality and the impartiality of the experts that review the design and the usage data. No certificate or rating program should be started until an adequate supply of trained and uh, licensed inspectors is on, is on hand. National standards for training and certification can reduce the burden on states. Sixth, buildings with their large potential gains at low or negative economic cost should play an important part of any carbon or energy use trading regime. Tradable rights or white certificates can be the link between buildings and the larger program. But the challenges are how to accurately evaluate claims of energy efficiency improvements and how to ensure the credibility of the certificates in a sector with so many actors. It would be more difficult for utilities in the United States to play the role of aggregator and verifier than it has been in a country like Australia, which has state-owned or provincial-level owned uh, electricity utilities Establish with monopolies. Establishment of a system of building energy efficiency ratings and the availability of a cadre of trained and li licensed experts to implement it would seem to be preconditions for rollout of any white certificate program. So the two are really related. Seventh, voluntary leadership programs such as LEED have a continuing role to play. There are a variety of voluntary initiatives in the building's energy field, including the ones we've talked about, Energy Star and LEED. The UK has one called BREAM, the Building Research Establishment Environmental Assessment Method. And in the UK and Australia, they're experimenting with green leases, where tenants and landlords would make reciprocal commitments uh, that would be the basis for investments in energy efficiency. National policy should continue to encourage these schemes as they can pioneer new approaches and front-load front the development of energy evaluation expertise in the private sector. Even with mandatory requirements, there is still a value for a step beyond, which can be more demanding. Eighth and last, as we design new energy efficiency programs, it's important to build in the systems to monitor and evaluate them. As we can only value what we can measure, the research challenge is to demonstrate the relationship between the new policies and the realization of energy efficiency in buildings. That would seem to be even more important if complex and expensive building rating systems are implemented. So as new policies are considered and rolled out, it would make sense to plus up the corresponding building energy efficiency research budgets, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of Energy, and those at the state level. I think we should support more objective peer-reviewed uh, research. So where are the green jobs in this effort? They are at every level. 
Take Energy Certificates. Senior executive of one of the professional engineering bodies in the UK told me that his group had certified 1,200 of its members to conduct assessments under the British Energy Rating Program, and that there are now perhaps 2,000 and 2,500 trained assessors in the country. The stock of 1.5 million, there is a stock of 1.5 million commercial buildings in the UK, some 10% of which are leased or sold in a normal year requiring 150,000 rating assessments annually for some time, or or a workload of 60 to 75 assessments per uh, assessor. Now, the United States is five times the size of Britain, which implies a requirement to 10 to 12,000 assessors and 750,000 certificates for the commercial sector alone. Coverage of residential buildings would be even more labor-intensive. Yet the largest number of green jobs is not the assessor structure. It comes through the investments in the cost-effective retrofits that we would uh, obtain through uh, this uh, system. The landmark McKinsey study in 2007 found that energy efficiency investments in buildings and appliances are our number one opportunity for greenhouse gas abatement at negative real costs, which means... Sensible building energy efficiency investments pay for themselves over time at reasonable discount rates. As McKinsey put it, the key to unlocking the negative cost options is to address the persistent barriers to market efficiency, such as mismatches between the cost of an option and who benefits, the the, uh, tenant uh, landlord problem. And uh, our main challenge is to cure the market imperfections to unlock the investment potential. Not quite a compelling bumper sticker, but, uh, but unfortunately the real problem. Unlock, uh, the, uh, unlock the investment potential by curing the market imperfections. Maybe it'll fit on a t-shirt. How big, uh, how big might such a cost-effective strategy in energy retrofits be? The McKinsey estimates 20 million U.S. homes would be candidates for retrofit investments in, in the building shell alone. In the commercial sector, even though energy efficiency has been improving, McKinsey estimates that better use of thermostats, installation of reflective roof coatings, improving air tightness, and using advanced insulation could improve heating and cooling efficiency by an additional 15 to 20 percent and do so across 56 billion square feet of new or renovated commercial buildings over the next two decades. Realizing this potential could create many jobs in construction, materials, design, and the finance sectors. So our challenge is to design public policies that unlock these profitable investment opportunities, reduce the carbon footprint of our buildings, and create skilled green jobs in the process. A close study of the more advanced European and Australian approaches to this problem can help us as we fashion them. Thanks very much for your attention. I look forward to the answering questions and talking about the issue. Thank you very much for a very interesting talk. About 27% of the energy that we consume in the United States is um, due to transportation, to vehicles. Mm -hmm. Um, We have many buildings in which we require uh, large amounts of, floor, of the floor area of the building to be devoted to parking. And when employees have ample free parking, 
they're more likely to drive to work alone and thereby consume more energy than if they use public transport, which is highly correlated with charging for parking mm -hmm. or having less parking available in the building. So my question is, did you find in these international comparisons um, any rating systems or building code requirements that uh, push down on the parking requirements? Mm -hmm. What we're doing in the United States is we're saying build a LEED certified building but have uh, you know, more of the area devoted to parking and that is energy inefficient. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Santa Monica just opened a a lead certified gold parking garage, which is... Uh, I know, heard about that as I drove yeah, in today. It's pretty interesting. Uh, this brings out the value of a lead system. Uh, I mean, this may not be the, the, the crown jewel of accomplishment of a lead system, but in principle, the, having both something that you do that changes the entire market incentives, uh, but they can't be super demanding because it's politically not viable. But then have something above that, it, that, that, it, that integrates a variety of issues, not just energy usage itself, but some of these other um, incentives for driving, if, it, if driving is, is, is something you're interested in, or materials use, or um, uh, other aspects of, 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 of a structure. And I think that that's, uh, that those kinds of issues are ones that we'll have to work our way through. Now, in Europe, this is not an issue. There isn't any parking. Uh, and they just have a different transportation um, structure. And that's also true in different areas of this country, uh, where there is more use of the automobile and less public transit in some parts. Uh, but that's a bigger issue. Very interesting talk. I'm just wondering, today they, or this week, they've said that they're going to be building the first nuclear energy plant, um, not from thorium, but from uh, dirty energy. And I'm wondering if you could make a comment in, in regards to your study about uh, leads and disposal of uh, dirty nuclear power. Well, uh, that's a little beyond the scope of my study. But uh, one thing I will point out is that there is an issue about these certificates, do you express the, particularly if you're doing performance, do you express the performance in terms of energy and kilojoules or something like that, or do you, ex do you express it in terms of carbon? Uh, the British have actually chosen to use carbon as the measure. And if you use carbon, you have uh, an impact on fuel choice decisions that a building might make between, I don't know, let's say oil, uh, nobody builds buildings anymore with oil, but between oil and natural gas or between uh, solar and uh, uh, grid power, which you don't otherwise capture. Uh, the, the, the downside of that is that sometimes a building, say, get its, gets its cooling energy from the grid and the choices are made by the managers of the grid without any... Uh, impact on the owner of the building. And so if, if the grid decides to build nuclear, then my carbon footprint is better than if the grid is run on, on natural gas. And so the, the problem in designing any of these kind of uh, disclosure information programs is to, um, uh, I think, my own judgment is not get ahead of yourself. Try to measure only those things that the that that the 
the, the consumer or the building owner whose behavior you're trying to affect has control over. And these bigger issues need to be handled in a bigger way. It seems to me that the uh, strategies of uh, using building codes or uh, relying on technology changes or uh, utility incentives can have positive marginal effects over the long haul. Uh, I'm curious, though, whether you ran across any examples of uh, maybe larger opportunities using things like zoning codes, where we could promote denser housing. For example, here in L.A., uh, the state projects we're going to have 3 million more people living in mm-hmm. L.A. County by 2050. Uh, that presents quite an opportunity if we can you know, move towards denser housing units, which are by themselves more energy efficient. Of course, we build on some of the previous gentleman's comments around transportation, if we can connect the right. housing with transportation. Right. Well, I think that's a good example of how you need to apply a systems approach. If you're going to try to save energy or you're going to try to reduce the carbon footprint, it isn't a series of... Um, Uh, one or two policies. You have to look at a system, and the system has the uh, effect that you want. I mean, and here at RAND, we believe in systems analysis. I mean, this is is what what, uh, we live uh, and breathe. Um, In uh, in the example you cite, uh, a a zoning policy is actually, um, if you will, a macro building energy efficiency policy. It, it, it requires, for example, the footprint of all the buildings to be smaller uh, or the footprint of the land use of the buildings to be smaller and inherently uh, save energy. But I think that, that, that this, what we were looking at is how do you, given whatever your, your land use pattern is, how do you make improvements and particularly uh, improvements in the existing building structure because, uh, yes, you should, just like with codes, you should have zoning that encourages the kind of building that you want to see as a society and, and for your other objectives. But um, that takes, it, it's a gift that keeps on giving, but it's a gift that takes a long time to have an impact unless you're just building a new city. Uh, the big savings, the way that we're going we're going to save carbon uh, in this sector that represents 40% of energy use in America is used in buildings, is by tackling the existing building stock. Because my house was built in 1929, and uh, you know I'm very happy with it. I don't plan to to um, to get a new one. Uh, but what I did was, you know, insulation, new windows, all those kinds of things. Uh, but I never, in all those decisions I made myself. I didn't have any decent analysis. You put the, you know, pay $3,000 to improve the insulation, and then you monitor the bills in the future and say to yourself whether it was worth it or not. That's all you can do. Oftentimes, government leads in technology and policy implementation. And have you seen uh, examples of a domestic or international spending of U.S. government currently, for example, you just came back from Iraq. All that reconstruction going on. Mm-hmm. Is there any emphasis on green building? No. <laughs> I, uh, to tell a war story here, I mean, I, I actually, I came in 2007 and 2008, and most of our decisions in, in infrastructure were made. My decision uh, the, uh, under the leadership of Ryan Crocker, uh, for whom I worked, was basically to stop doing infrastructure. 
we, um, uh, we finished the projects that we had started and we moved to what we called capacity development. We basically wanted to affect the way that the Iraqis spent their own money and had their own institutions so it worked uh, more effectively. Um, we, in the earlier phases of our assistance in Iraq, we thought conceptually in 2004 in particular that we have an opportunity to make a whole new society and some would say make it in our image. Um, and But in technology we thought, oh, this is a ox cart society. We're going to help them leap to the 21st century. And we built a lot of things. We, we paid for a lot of things that were very modern technology. Uh, the problem was that the Iraqis were not uh, ready to maintain it and operate it. I'll uh, give you two examples. One, we built 140 healthcare, uh, basic healthcare, community healthcare uh, centers, and which is great. I mean, and they really needed it. But one of the problems in Iraq is clean water. So uh, in the design, the Army Corps of Engineers specified that every one of these 140 um, uh, basic healthcare centers would have reverse osmosis energy uh, water purification systems. I visited one, and not in a terrible neighborhood in Mansouria in, in Baghdad. And so we go around, and there's the the the, the X-ray, and there are a whole long line of happy patients waiting to see doctors, and all this the pharmacy and things like that, all seeming to work quite well. We had no we were hands off. The Iraqis were running it. Till we came to the reverse osmosis. We walked in there. It was dust everywhere. They ha couldn't figure out how to work it, and it took too much power. So it was actually not a very good use of trying to... I mean, the purpose was they should have clean water for, for surgical procedures. At another level, we built... The biggest single project that we built was a $240 million water uh, treatment plant and we had the same problem. It was very advanced technology that any American city would use, not appropriate in an Iraqi context. So you have a balance. Do you make the technology right, but uh, uh, the, 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 the country that you're trying to help, the people you're trying to help, don't have the ability to, to maintain it? Or do you go for the older technology that they know and lock them into a bad system that they'll be stuck with forever? These are the real-world problems that we face, uh, and they're not easy to solve. Charlie, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.